Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in the image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, that we may have it today and We've heard it read in a language that we understand, yet, Lord, we confess that we have need of greater understanding than physical understanding. We need spiritual understanding. We need you, by the work of your Spirit, to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Would you, O oh God, teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake, make us whole, make us more like Jesus? Minister to our hearts and lead us in paths of righteousness. And Father, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, we find King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah in a dire circumstance. They're facing a fierce invading army composed of Moabites, Ammonites, and Maonites with little, very little 
chance of success on their own, Jehoshaphat does what a godly king should do. He assembles the people of Judah together. He proclaims a fast and he leads them to seek the Lord's face. And he asks the Lord to execute judgment on these enemies. And he ends his prayer with these words. Listen. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Catch his last words there. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Faced with what we've encountered in the last few weeks here in Revelation, chapters 12 and 13, we might actually be feeling a a little bit, maybe a lot, like Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. For a fierce army has assembled. It's assembled against the church this counterfeit evil trinity, the Satan, the dragon, along with his two beasts, that false savior and that false prophet or false spirit. They've gathered together to war against God's people, seeking to undermine and even destroy the kingdom of Christ here on earth. As we've read, it's truly been a terrifying behind-the-scenes picture of the spiritual battle that we face as God's people. But John, inspired by God, wrote this down so that we would not be hopeless. That we would know that there is hope in this battle. John wants us to know this, and as he's conveyed the divine vision that he's received to us, have you noticed that he never stops calling us to be encouraged? He calls us to persevere. He calls us to have wisdom. John knows. He wants you to know, along with Judah's former king, that though we don't always know what to do, our eyes must be kept on Jesus. Our eyes must be on the Lord, the one who is victorious over all. It's fitting then that chapter 14 begins where it does. After all these details of the dragon and his two beasts, what happens? The eyes of the apostle are now directed upward. He lifts his eyes up to the hills. From where does his help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. John lifts his eyes up to the true Mount Zion, the heavenly temple where God is sitting on his throne. And so we begin the study of our text this morning with a vision of heaven. If you're taking notes, it's our first point, a vision of heaven. In some ways, verses 1 through 5 resemble chapter 7, perhaps even 5, 6, and 7. What do we find? We find the risen, conquering Lamb, Jesus Christ, standing before the throne and standing before the four living creatures and the elders, and and he's standing with all those whom he has redeemed. Here, the 144,000, 
We've covered this before. I'll remind you, you may even remember that this number is not a reference to an actual number of Christians who got into heaven first. It's not the number of super elite, uber holy saints that somehow managed to earn a higher rank in this life. Do you remember it's a symbolic number representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Those 12 representing all the saints from the Old Testament time, all the saints from the New Testament time. I'm not really good at math, but 12 times 12 is what? 144. And then in this day, if you're trying to think of a number that's just too much to count, too much to fathom, you would say 1,000. So 144,000. This is a figurative, symbolic number. It represents all those whom the Lamb has redeemed. All those from all time who belong to Jesus, all whom the Father gave to him, he came and he saved. All of them. A lot. A lot. A multitude. Too many to be numbered. It's all those who have, what does it say, the name of the Lamb and his Father's name written on their forehead. Last week we learned that the mark of the beast is given to those who worship the beast. We made the case that it's not a a literal mark, but it's a figurative mark that signifies belonging, much like slaves and soldiers of that day would have been marked as belonging to an owner or loyal to a general. Likewise, those of us who are going to be with God in heaven, we don't have a figurative mark, excuse me, a literal mark on our foreheads. right? We We don't have it. I can't see it upon you. Hopefully you can't see it on me. Maybe I didn't wash my face good enough. There's really not a mark there. It's figurative, symbolic, that we belong to God. We belong to Him. Our allegiance is to Him, and we worship Him and Him alone. If you've been following along, you'll notice that there's really only two types of people in the book of Revelation. Those who bear the mark of the beast and service to Satan through sin and unbelief. And those who bear the mark of God, those who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So those marked for God, the 144,000, as we've seen through the different cycles of the book, John's eyes are lifted to that great and glorious day. We're doing what we were created to do. Worship. Worship, having been redeemed from the earth, as verse 3 indicates, God's people now fill the heavens with a majestic song. Notice it's a new song. What does that mean in the Bible? A new song is saying to celebrate deliverance and salvation. Sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. We're singing a new song. The Lamb has delivered us. He saved us. Notice how John describes it. On the one hand, it's like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of loud thunder. But on the other hand, he said it's the sound of harpists playing on their harps. William Hendrickson, commentator, he he says this. He says, although this sound will be majestic, sublime, and constant, it will at the same time be the most lovely, the most sweet, and the most tender song you have ever heard. I can't wait to hear that song. 
can't wait to stand there before the Lamb. Not only hear it, but join in the singing. Well, we continue on. We come to verses 4 and 5, which have caused quite a bit of confusion over the ages, especially with this seemingly odd reference to these 144,000 are, are virgins. That's what it says. They've not defiled themselves with women. Some have taken this as a vindication for a priestly or monastic life devoted to celibacy. Some have taken that way. Some have even taken it as an attack on the dignity of women. Neither one is correct. What's the purity in question here? What's the purity in question? What's chapters 12 and 13 and now 14 been all about? Fidelity, faithfulness to God, spiritual purity, spiritual faithfulness. I think Leon Morris has helped when he says this. It means that the people in question, these 144,000, which is symbolic for all believers of all time, he says these people have kept themselves completely free from intercourse with the pagan world system. That's the system of the dragon and his two beasts. They've lived up to what is implied in their betrothal to Christ, he says. You see, the bride of Christ is faithful to him and to him alone. Look at verse 4. It indicates they will follow him wherever he goes. And because they're the first fruits of his harvest, and in two weeks, we'll take a, a look at the harvest. That's what comes next. But these 144,000, us, were first fruits of his harvest. We belong to God. We're dedicated to God. And because we belong to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, we speak the truth. We worship in truth. So in this picture the church of all ages, the 144,000, is seen as representing the humble, thankful, radiant bride of Jesus Christ in all her splendor. The church who's been redeemed by Jesus and for Jesus. The bride presented to him in all her glory. So we see then that in the face of a terrifying enemy... John's eyes and our eyes are directed up to once again look up and get a glorious vision of heaven. Quoting a lot today because a lot of men and women much smarter than me have said wonderful things. And I want to quote what Rick Phillips says about this vision because I think it's very helpful and very encouraging. It's a short quote, but let me read it. He says, By seeing the divinely ordained end of our salvation... John and his readers are encouraged as they face Roman persecution. His example urges Christians to think from the end of history backward to our present trials. Rather than starting where we are now in our weakness and our doubt and our earthly affliction, looking from them with anxiety over our future prospects, he says we should reverse the process. We should reverse that process. I think he's right. 
We need to fix our minds on the certainty of our future. We need to fix our minds on the certainty of heaven. We need to look there, look to the mountains, to Mount Zion, where the Lamb stands in victory, and work backward from there to find hope in whatever trial we face today. For no matter what you're facing today, no matter what we face, no matter how fierce the onslaught of the dragon and his two beasts might be, we talked for the last two weeks how relentless the dragon and his beasts are in pursuing God's people. No matter how relentless he might be, if you are in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. You are victorious because Christ is victorious. And so the vision of heaven has called us to keep our eyes on Jesus, on the victory that we have. And now we come to verses 6 through 12. And with them, a continued call. So let's consider then our second point this morning, if you're taking note. Three warnings for the earth. Three warnings for the earth. John now sees three angels in succession flying overhead. And each of them has a distinct message. You'll see the first one recorded in verses 6 and 7, and then the second in 8, and the third in 9 and following. That first angel, the first one, he appears to be like one of those airplanes that fly overhead, right, with an advertisement on the back of it. You guys have seen those, right? Okay, that's kind of what it's like. But he's not advertising anything, is he? He's not advertising. This one proclaims an eternal gospel. Did you catch that? His message is an eternal gospel to all those who dwell on earth. It goes and makes this clear to every nation and tribe and language and people. It's universal. It goes out to all. You've read this text already. We've read it together this morning. Are you wondering, how is this a gospel? How is this a gospel? His message mentions nothing about Jesus. It says nothing about Jesus' death on the cross for sin. It says nothing about the free offer of salvation through faith and by grace. He said it's a warning. Fear God. Give him glory. For the hour of judgment has come. That's the eternal gospel he's proclaiming. Well, it might be a warning. But it's good news. It's good news for a persecuted church. I mean, isn't that what the word gospel means? Quite literally, it just means good news. People received all kinds of gospels. They receive all kinds of good news. This is good news for a persecuted church. Good news about the coming defeat of ungodly powers, and thus freedom from tyrants who will afflict her. Derek Thomas says, the downfall of all that is contrary to the purposes of God is good news for the believer. The downfall of everything that is contrary to the purposes of God is good news. It's good news for the believer. A second angel then appears. And he's seen following the first, and what does this angel say? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the wrath, literally wrath, of her sexual immorality. 
Now we're going to be introduced further to this concept of Babylon the Great in later chapters. So right now, as it's kind of slipped in here, let me just suffice it to say that Babylon is a reference to those world systems and its rulers who oppose God and his people. If you think where this comes from, literally the Babylon of Daniel's day. Okay? Rome and the Apostles' Day. How does Peter address the church, right? He, those who are in Babylon, right? the church who is in Rome. And maybe today and every other day since, every other systematic, evil, worldly system that persecutes the church. Here this angel is seen at the end of days proclaiming the downfall of this Babylon. The one who says, seduce the world, the drink of her passionate wrath. The one who wooed the world to be unfaithful to God by carousing with evil. So the first angel warns an indifferent world to realize that judgment is coming and to fear God in repentance. Now the second angel adds the just condemnation of God on those people who don't. Condemnation upon those who worship the beast by indulging in sin. Now, we certainly don't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but we do find comfort. Christian, you find comfort to know that this present evil age and all the evil in it is certainly passing away. It is coming to an end. And that is exactly the vivid picture that's delivered by the third angel. Here the proclamation is clear. If you worship the beast, if you are marked as belonging to him, you will spend eternity in hell. You will experience the full wrath of God as it is poured out upon you for your sin. It was very common in this time to mix wine with water. You're almost always drinking diluted wine. This is full. This is the full wrath of God. Okay, so I just lost my popularity card, huh? It's not very popular. I'm mourned to think how much the church, capital C Church Worldwide, overlooks this truth. I mean, listen, no one takes joy in talking about hell. I certainly don't take joy in talking about hell. But this picture here is just a glimpse. You're getting right now a glimpse of the full picture we're going to get as we go even deeper into the book of Revelation. But this picture and the pictures that follow shouldn't surprise you. Have you read the Gospels? Have you read the Gospels? Have you read them? If so, you've already read more about hell than is mentioned in this passage. Jesus talked a lot about the reality of hell. If you've read the Gospels, you've heard the Master talk about hell. So what's the point? It's simple. Unless the full wrath of God against your sin was poured out upon Jesus on the cross? Unless 
the full wrath of God against your sin was poured out on the cross, it will be poured out upon you for all eternity in hell. That's the truth of God's word. My pastor's heart pleads with you and says, listen, listen, did you hear what I said? Unless the full wrath of God against your sin was poured out upon his son on the cross at Calvary, where it was satisfied there, and you've now received his righteousness, unless that is true of you, God's wrath will be poured out on you in hell, eternally separated from him, in a sense. Did you hear me? Are you listening? God has provided a way. He's provided a way for you to be spared from that. And if he's calling you by his spirit this morning, would you turn from your sin and turn to him in faith and be spared, be saved? Be saved. Those of you who are in Christ, for those who have believed in him by faith, I want you to take note of verse 12. The warnings for the earth given by these three angels are also a call for us, a continuing call for endurance to keep the commands of God and to keep our faith in Jesus until he returns. The message is clear. Don't lose sight of your glorious future a future that most certainly includes the end of all evil. God's called you to that future, and God will bring you safely there. I kind of giggle when I think about all that's been made of this number, 144,000. And I say, okay, let's get literal about it for a minute. I'm thankful that if he purposed 144,000, all 144,000 made it there. Not 139,999, right? Right? All of them. All of them. God brings them all safely there to glory. This is not our first view of heaven on the last day. And this won't be our last view of heaven on the last day in the book of Revelation. If you're in Christ, if your name is in his book written before the foundation of the world, you will be there. He will bring you safely home. And though you may stand today on Jordan's stormy banks, as Austin sang earlier, you can say, I am bound for the promised land. I know I am bound for the promised land. And that brings us to our final verse this morning, verse 13, and our final point. A blessing for the redeemed. A blessing for the redeemed. Look again there at that verse. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. If we're still reeling from the conflict that's described in 12 and 13, from that furious war against the church, you should see this as a beautiful respite. Even though our eyes have been cast upward to see the victorious church in heaven, and even though we've been called to persevere in faith and obedience, knowing that the fall of Babylon, the great is sure, 
I think we're even further comforted here with this divine blessing for all those who will die before Christ returns in glory. Whether they die in martyrdom or they die under the curse of natural death, blessed are those who die in the Lord. But what blessing? What blessing? I mean, we, we, we live in a culture that, that's scared and runs from death. Why would it be blessed to die? Well, it's found in the phrase, in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. You've already seen the stark contrast between those who die in the Lord and those who die apart from the Lord. Those who die apart from the Lord will spend eternity apart from his grace and blessing in hell, suffering that eternal torment. But those who die in the Lord are going to be there in his presence for all eternity. They're going to be forever blessed as they live in the the full light of the full glory of who he is forever and ever. I can't wait till we get to those pictures. Maybe we should have done Revelation in reverse, right? That would have really confused you. Those are beautiful pictures. Turn there and read them sometime if you need that encouragement. But listen, even though it's a blessing to be in the presence of God forever, note that such blessing is explained further. The text goes on and it gives two particular benefits. The first one it mentions is rest, true spiritual rest, the fullness of rest that Jesus, remember he invites us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me all who labor, come to me, who are heavy laden, and he'll give you what? Rest. In heaven, we get to fully realize the fullness of that rest, to be eternally satisfied in Christ and that rest. Second, I want you to note the text says their deeds follow them. All our sins and trials and torments are left behind when we die. But our good works and our faithfulness to Christ will follow after. Will follow after as a crown to our life of faith. And to be clear, this verse does not say that our works go before us and open a way to heaven. It's not what this verse says. That's impossible. Your works cannot open the way to heaven. If you're saved by works like I am, you're saved by the works of Christ. That's the only work that gets me there. It's the work of Christ. Only Jesus can do that. I think Matthew Henry, many of you are familiar with this Puritan pastor who's written such a great commentary on the Bible. He puts it this way. He says, works do not go before us as our title, our price of purchase, but they follow us as our evidence of having lived and died in the Lord. And the memory of them will be pleasant and the reward glorious far above the merit of all the service and sufferings. These are the benefits that flow from the blessing of dying in the Lord. Rest in Christ and eternal satisfaction of the glorious reward of heaven for serving him. When we get into that last part of our revelation time, king of glory, we'll spend a lot of time talking about that. As I thought about this week's passage and prayed upon it and studied it, I I, I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that the last thing that the Babylon of John's day would say of his beleaguered, impoverished, and soon persecuted readers, what Babylon would say to the church, they would never look at church and say, that's a blessed people. Hashtag blessed. You know, today, 
Babylon looks with similar eyes on us. But notice the voice of the Spirit. Blessed indeed. Exclamation point, right? Blessed indeed. Back in Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah did not know what to do when they were faced with a great enemy. But they knew to turn their gaze to heaven, turn their gaze to God, to turn their eyes to the one who could deliver them. You know, God answered their prayer. He responded to them through Jehaziel, the prophet, the Levite. You can turn there if you want, or you can listen and look later, but it's 2 Chronicles 20.15. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but mine. God proved himself faithful and true by destroying all the Moabites, all the Ammonites, and all the Menuhites who stood against Judah that day. He turned them against each other until not one of them were left standing. Christians, I want you to take heart today to know that God doesn't change. He's still faithful and true He already has, and he most certainly will destroy the dragon. He'll destroy the beast. He'll destroy the other beast. He'll destroy the horde of evil agents that stand against him. And as you wait for that final day, even if you suffer trials to this very day, even if our lives are requested or demanded for fidelity to Christ, you can keep your eyes fixed on him. Because you have a certain future. You have a certain future. Because it's written in God's word, I can say it as God's word. It's not from me, it's from him. And he says, do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours. It's mine. Amen and amen.